Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. I want to invite you to stay updated with me on social media and see what we are doing in the ministry. You can follow me on Facebook at John Wallace. You can follow me on Instagram at Jonathan R. Wallace. And you can follow our YouTube page at New Beginnings Huntington. I pray this message builds your faith and gives you revelation. Let's get ready for the Word of God. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn open to Romans chapter 12 tonight. Romans chapter 12. This is Understanding the Gifts and the Call of God, part 6. We're on part 6. There's some specific things the Lord told me to just go through and teach. Uh, and we're going to get to some of those other things. But the, he gave me three things. He told me to teach the gifts. He told me to teach healing. And he told me to teach prosperity. And I, I endeavor even after this, after we get through with the gifts, I don't want to just teach healing, like throw some scriptures at you. I want to just go Old Testament, I mean everything, and teach you doctrinally. Just the, the, the doctrine of healing, the doctrine of prosperity, so that it's a firm, 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 firm foundation in you. Not only that you'll know it, but that you could teach other people. Hopefully that these teachings, that if you take notes and break them down and meditate on it, it gets in you and it sticks and it produces a hundredfold in your life. And it gets in you even at the subconscious level where you not only understand it for you, but you, again, you can impart it and, and teach other people these things as well. So in Romans chapter 12, I, got, I told you with the last few services we've been going through, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it, what is listed is known as the nine gifts of the Spirit. Well, I told you that I believe there's way more than nine gifts uh, and so we're going to begin to read and study tonight, break down each of the gifts listed in Romans chapter 12. I'll tell you why I believe this. If you go ahead and read verses 6 through 8. In his grace, God has given us different gifts. Say gifts. So is Paul talking about gifts here? Yes. Say yes. Come on, I need y'all to participate. Are you excited to be in the house of the Lord tonight? Praise God. If you're not, then just get over yourself because it's going to be good. Gifts. Say gifts. For doing certain things well. In fact, it's the same Greek word used in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The same word for gifts. So it's talking about the same thing. Uh, so it says, if God has given you the ability to prophesy, if you have your Bible, actually I encourage you, I encourage you to have your Bible out. I encourage you to take some notes tonight. If you don't do either one of those things, I'll assume that you're just way smarter and superior, and next week you can preach and teach. How about that? So uh, prophecy, highlight this in your Bible. Prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, highlight that. Serve them well. If you are a teacher, highlight that, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, highlight that, be encouraging. If it is giving, highlight that, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, highlight leadership, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have the gift, say gift. Again, Paul's talking about gifts. That's why I don't believe there's nine gifts of the Spirit. There's at least, let's see here. Uh, one, two, three, four, 
five, six, seven other gifts, but prophecies repeated twice, so six other gifts. So we know that there's at least 15 gifts in the New Testament, and then Sunday morning we're going to talk about the fivefold ministry from Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. But he says, if you have the gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. So just right there, you have prophecy, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leadership, and kindness. We're going to break all of these down. The reason that I also believe that these are lumped in with the gifts, these are equal gifts of the Spirit, just like the gift of faith. You know, we're going to break down what each of these things mean, but I want you to understand that the gift of leadership, the gift of kindness, what's said are encouraging others, is no less a gift than the gift of faith, than the working of miracles. Amen. In fact, we know this because if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that's where we pull the nine gifts of the Spirit out in the previous services. It says at the end in verse 27 through 28, are all of you together are Christ's body and each of you are a part of it. Here are some of the parts God has appointed for the church. First are apostles. We'll get to Ephesians 4. An apostle is a gift given to the church. Prophets. Third are teachers. Say teachers. Well, that's one of the gifts Listed, it's also one of the fivefold in Ephesians 4, but it's also one of the gifts lifted, listed here in Romans 12. Teachers. It says, then those who do miracles. Well, where was the gift of the working of miracles? That was 1 Corinthians 12. That was one of the nine gifts, right? The gift of healing, one of the nine gifts from 1 Corinthians 12. Then those who can help others. Wow, what do we see that? That's from right here, Romans 12. Or those that have the gift of leadership. So see, Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 tied them all together. They're all equal gifts of the Spirit. Amen. So there's not nine gifts of the Spirit. The reason, why, why am I even telling you that? Because every book that I ever read about the gifts of the Spirit is about the nine gifts of the Spirit, when there's way more gifts than that listed in the New Testament. And I don't know why we prioritize certain ones. I know the, Paul said certain are more beneficial than others, but why... You know, we just create a platform and we kind of make certain things and people and give celebrities when they're all gifts given which are needed in the body of Christ. So we should know all of them and understand them. Amen. A gift, a gift is this. I don't know if I highlighted this for you, but it's a favor with which one receives without any merit of his own. The gift of divine grace. A favor with which one receives without any merit of his own. No, this is not under prophecy. So this is the definition of what a gift is. A favor with which one receives without any merit of his own. So say the word merit. That means that you could never buy it. You could never earn it. It's something that God gives to you freely. You could never earn it. Praise God. So let's go ahead and let's all the teaching that you receive, that if you fast for 35 days and you do all these things, you'll be more anointed and more gifted. That's false because the gifts are unmerited. I'm not telling you not to pray and I'm not telling you not to fast because those are good things to do. But we've got to get out of this mindset of look at me, look how awesome I am and how spiritual I am and how gifted I am and how successful I am. And the reason that I am what I am is because of the things that I did. You're totally outside of the grace of God if you take that approach. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. I'm an apostle by the grace of God. 
Hallelujah. I'm a pastor of this church by the grace of God. I look around all the time and I say, Lord, I'm so thankful that you've, that you've done this because really it's, it's apart from me. It's apart from me. It's something that the Lord has appointed me to do, a work that he's appointed me to do. And it's by his grace. It's not because I'm more spiritual. I'm better than you. It, it, I mean, that's just so stupid to even think like that. So a gift is something which a person receives without any merit of his own. You could never earn it. Not in a million thousand years. Praise God. The gift of divine grace. That's actually what grace is. Grace is unmerited. You know, a lot of people also don't understand what grace is. They think grace and mercy are the same thing. Grace and mercy are not the same thing. If somebody sinned against me and then you forgive them, they, oh, you're showing him grace. No, that's not what grace is. Grace is not forgiveness. Grace is not showing mercy. Grace, we're about to read exactly what grace is. Grace, look back up in Romans chapter 12, 6. It says, in his grace, God has given us gifts for doing certain things well. So what does the gift allow you to do? It allows you to do certain things well. <laughs> what does God's grace do? It gives you the ability to do certain things well. That means that when God's grace comes on you, it's not his mercy and his forgiveness. If you receive the grace of God, you've received a touch from the Lord that gives you the ability to do certain things well. That's what the grace of God is. Amen. So let's go ahead and get into this tonight. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to teach on prophecy, but I'll go ahead and just give you a quick recap. Number one, prophecy. Prophecy is, this is from a previous sermon that, that I did. It's revelation coming from divine inspiration. Revelation coming from divine inspiration. Declaring the purposes of God, whether by reproving and admonishing the wicked, comforting the afflicted, or revealing things hidden, or foretelling the future. Again, reprove and admonish, it's just a fancy way to say express disapproval or to warn. If you reprove somebody or admonish somebody, you're expressing your disapproval of them, or you're warning them. That's what a prophet did. That's what Isaiah did. That's what Jeremiah did. They were sent to admonish their generation. John the Baptist, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He admonished, he admonished, I'm sorry, and reproved the generation that he was sent to. He was a prophet of the Lord. Dake, Finnis Dake, his definition of prophecy is supernatural utterance in the native tongue. A miracle of divine utterance not conceived by human thought or reasoning. Supernatural utterance in the native tongue, a miracle of divine utterance not conceived by human thought or reasoning. So, go back up to Romans 12, verse 6. It says, in his grace, God's given us different uh, the gifts for doing certain things well. If God's given you the ability to prophesy, so say prophesy. Prophesy is a gift of God. It's a grace of God. It's something that, again, it's unmerited. Could never earn it. You can never be spiritual enough to be a prophet or to prophesy. It's something that the Holy Ghost enables you to do. And it says, if you have this gift, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. 
Romans 12, or I'll read it to you in the New King James, that last line there, prophesy in proportion to your faith. Speak out with as much faith as God has given you. You know, there's a measure of faith. Anything that you'll do takes faith to do it. Amen. You know, I remember when we started this church, I've told you guys the story many times that when we started this church, this church was handed to us by the church above us that had, I mean, we had like $800 in our account of this church. And the first week that I got here, we got a water bill for like $830 the first week. So literally starting out after week number one, and we were like negative $30 (laughs) was what we had in our account. I remember I went to them and was like, man, what's going on? Someone left a toilet running. I don't know what to do. They basically said, figure it out. So what did I do? I got a book by Kenneth Hagin that that really, it was a little mini book written by Kenneth Hagin that was, you can have what you say. I remember sitting in this, in this church and I read that book. It was talking about how you can have what you say. And he was talking about speaking and believing. And I began to speak and I said, well, I'm going to believe God for $800 a week to come into this church. Then I began to believe God for $800 a week. That, I, I mean, this church might have been bringing in $1,600 a month total at that time. $800 a week. You know what? It took me getting to that level of faith in order for it to come in. And then after we hit that, I began to believe God. Okay, Lord, I'm believing for $4,000 a month to come into this church, into this ministry. And then I'm believing for $8,000. Then I'm believing for $10,000. Then I'm believing for $16,000. Then I'm believing for $20,000. That's what my faith is set right now is for $20,000 a month to come into this ministry. Can I tell you something? We've hit every other marker before that. Praise God. It's pretty amazing, isn't that? Well, my whole point is anything according to Hebrews 11 that you receive from God, you receive by faith. So at each level you step into, it takes different levels of faith to operate. Right? And so when it's saying prophesy with as much faith that you have is, yes, you, you know, it, you can always compare yourself and say, well, I'm not like Brother Robin Bullock. I'm not like these other prophets. I don't have this big, huge gift. Guys, can I tell you that everybody started and they had to increase and develop their gift and increase their faith. So what Paul is saying is basically be excellent and with what God has given you right now. Prophesy with as much faith as you have. Amen. There's a portion of faith given to you by God in order to do the thing that he's called you to do. The measure of faith, the Bible calls it. Each person is given a measure of faith. And each person has to step into a higher measure of faith to operate at higher levels. You know, when we get to the point where we're running 300 people, 400 people, 500 people in this church, it will be accomplished by the measure of faith. We'll step into a new measure of faith. And according to that faith, we'll receive. Praise God. Um, And so, if prophecy is the gift, it says, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Again, that's just basically a different, a fancy way to say be excellent. 
Be excellent. Prophesy with what God's given you. Be the best prophet that you can be. All right, we're going to see this pattern through all of this. Number two, write this down, serving others. Serving others. This is the word that's used in the Bible for the word deacon. I'm going to explain what a bishop is and what a deacon is. Those aren't really words that we use too much, I guess, in a Pentecostal circle. I think that some other denominations may use those terms more like, oh, man, I've been appointed as a bishop. I've been appointed as a deacon. And if you're like me, I always thought, what the heck is the difference? What's the difference between a bishop and a deacon? What really are they? Well, I'm going to tell you, that word serving others, in the Greek, it's the word in the Bible used for deacon. Say deacon. The word deacon, literally what it means is servant. If you're appointed as a deacon, you're appointed as a servant. And so the definition of deacon is those who execute the command of, of others those who execute the command of others so let me tell you there's two again there's two appointings i should say in a in a local body of christ when paul went around planting churches he appointed really two main types of people he appointed bishops and he appointed deacons and then there's also a word used in the Bible that's the word elder, and basically it means both of them. Like when Paul told Titus to appoint elders to the church, he was referring to both bishop, bishops and deacons. So what is a bishop? A bishop is simply a teaching elder, somebody that preaches and teaches. Somebody that has been appointed over preaching and teaching the body of Christ. That's what a bishop is, a teaching elder. So what Paul would do when he would plant a church and he, it was, he would raise up elders, he would raise up men, teach them the word, and then appoint them in teaching the body of Christ or shepherding or pastoring, preaching to them. And then deacons, a deacon basically is what today we would call an associate pastor or basically in the Bible it was an elder appointed to secular matters. A business elder. So a deacon is a lay minister to assist a minister, another minister, in secular affairs. Really, a deacon was to assist a bishop in secular affairs. I'll give you some examples if that's confusing to you to break this down. It's an associate pastor. So here's an example of this in, in Acts 6, 2. It says, so the 12 called a meeting of all the believers and they said we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God not running a food program we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God and not running a food program this is kind of where this idea really began because they were saying God has appointed us as they were apostles but they were functioning in the role of bishops they were preaching and teaching the word of God but I can tell you something guys that every person I don't care if it's Kenneth Copeland, if it's Kenneth Hagin, if it's Dr. Rodney Howard Brown, if it's Jonathan Shuttlesworth, every person has to put their pants on one leg at a time. And every person has normal things that you have to deal with, right? When you have kids, I can tell you, I told my wife, I said, one of the first things I'd love to do, because we keep having all these dang kids, I said, one of the things I'd love to do 
is when we could get to the level financially, you guys may laugh at this, but I said, I'd love to hire somebody just to help you with the kids at home all the time. Why? Because there's such a call to be given over to studying the word of God. That's why I never really understood. Um, you know, and I, I do understand being bivocational where you have to do that sometimes. You have to start out and just basically be faithful with what God's given you. Again, operate in the measure of faith that you've been given to start with and then just increase it and increase it. We know how you can increase your faith. It comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and it comes by application of that word. You can rise into different levels or realms of faith, right? But some people are bivocational, but it, there's just kind of this idea. And, and I think that a lot of pastors, especially in America, they probably struggle with that. You know, they're out working on, a, on electrical lines, work, work, out running plumbing lines, out doing all these things, and then basically their sermons or their teachings consist of the 15 minutes they had of free time to throw something together and then come stand before the people. Guys, that's why these things were appointed. Bishops were appointed to preach and teach the word of God. That's exactly what they were saying here. He said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word and not running a food program. So... Let me ask you this question. They said, we can't focus our attention on these things because we're called to spend our time and energy in preaching the word. So here's the question. Who took care of the normal stuff? Deacons. Well, not the food program, but that's the role of a deacon. They're, they are called, they are an elder appointed to secular matters. A ministry in the church that's very similar, not necessarily an appointed deacon, but will be known as like the ministry of helps. I can tell you right now, one of the biggest people that we have that operates in the ministry of helps is my mother. My mother is great at the ministry of helps. This is really what it's talking about, about a deacon. You know, I don't really have to worry about Sam's runs. This church has to be clean, it has to be stocked, and things have to get done. I don't have to worry about that. Do you know why? Because I have a person that takes care of that for me. That says, I'll make sure that I get with Reagan who cleans the church and every, all the list and the, the groceries, the things that we need for the church, I'll take care of it. You know, we get mail all the time from accountants. You wouldn't believe the hoops that you have to jump through to be registered as a legal ministry in the United States of America. The paperwork that you have to file, there's I's you have to dot and T's you have to cross and all of these things. I'm so thankful I have somebody that I can call on. That I don't have to, man, guys, sorry, I didn't, I didn't really have time to prepare anything to preach and teach you today because I was up here doing paperwork for three days straight trying to sort that out. I have a person that takes care of the secular matters for me so that I can devote myself to preparation and preaching and teaching of the word. That was actually the assigned position of a deacon in the New Testament church, a business elder. They were called to come alongside and assist the bishop in secular matters so that they could focus on preaching and teaching the word. Amen. Amen. And so, in Romans chapter 12, it says, if God's given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, again, that's the word for deacon. Serve them well. Serve them well. I want you to say serve them well. Serve them well. You have to understand this as well, 
This, this is a grace and a gift of the Holy Ghost. So many people have such a hard time because, again, we idolize certain things. We idolize the microphone and the pulpit, and everybody wants to be, and I'm not saying you, I'm talking like the rat race of life. Everybody wants to be the, the face, the front of everything. And, the, you know, you got to understand this as well, is that it's also just like this, they have this, this kind of climbing the ladder mentality. Well, I'll just go and I'll serve here, and it, it's with the intentions of always, you know, getting a higher platform. There's nothing wrong with that. God will bless you and reward you, and that's what you're called to do. But the Bible actually says that there are people that their grace, their gift from God, their appointment to the body of Christ is to be an elder of secular matters, not a preaching and teaching pastor. But everybody wants to preach and teach, and then let's just neglect all of those other things. Let me ask you this question. What if that's what God called you to do, and what if that's all you were ever called to do? Is that enough? Is that enough? Is it enough to say to the Lord, Lord, you know, again, because we think certain things are more magnificent and grander than other things. No, this is a gift. This is an appointment. This is a gift of the Holy Ghost to the body of Christ, a deacon, a servant. And so, this is interesting. Turn your Bible to 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 12. In the same way, deacons, this is the qualifications. So this isn't something that even in the Bible that they just handed to the first person right, that wanted to serve in this role. Oh, man, you know, we can't get anybody to step up. So I guess the first person that seems willing, that's who will let do these things. There was actually qualifications to serve in this way in the Bible. That if you didn't meet these qualifications, you weren't even fit to be a deacon or much less a, a bishop, a preaching pastor, a teaching pastor. These are the qualifications for a deacon. He says, in the same way, deacons must be well-respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. I know people will use that line, heavy drinkers. Well, the Bible says you can drink, but it just says don't be a heavy drinker. Well, other translations use the phrase, they must not be given over to wine. The Bible says that wine's not fit for kings. It's meant, if you know what? The Bible says there's only one class of person that wine and alcohol is fit for. It's for the perishing, those that are perishing, those that are dying. It says let them drink to forget their sorrows. Let them drink to ease their pain. I'm not going to go in, into the text in the book of Proverbs that talks about all of those things, but the whole point is it's not fit for kings. So if you want to condone alcohol in your life, that's the confession that you make over yourself. You're confessing, I'll never be a king. This is good preaching tonight. You think that you can prosper in God's economy and God's kingdom and still be a drinker. You can't. Just by doing that, your confession is, I'm perishing, I'm sick, I'm in poverty, therefore I need this alcohol, according to the scripture, to ease my sorrows in all of these areas. <laughs> Amen. So, people will try to use little things like that. No, you must not be given to wine. It says... 
They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. They must be committed to the mystery of faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience. Before they are appointed as deacons, look at this, let them be closely examined and if they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. Guys, I'm telling you, this is the kind of stuff that runs people off. Well, I've been going to a church for a long time, and I think that I need some kind of level of position or authority. You should appoint me to the board of elders. I'm a big giver. I do all these things. And then you begin to look at their life. Are they dishonest with money? Let me tell you, I'll tell you right now, if they're not tithing to the church, they're dishonest with money. They're not being honest with what God told them to do. They're not being obedient and faithful. So, I mean, you say stuff like that. Well, you know what? Imagine this. This is how abrasive and truthful the Bible was. But nowadays, people really don't want to say that. Man, I sure would like to be on the board. Really? You can't. You're disqualified because you don't tithe. Well, I'm going to go somewhere else. Okay, then run around and look for people that will tell you what your itching ears want to hear. Let them be closely examined. And if they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. And if they don't pass the test after close examination, then they're not fit to serve. Very simple. Can I tell you something as well, guys, is that it's in this generation, we prioritize get like talent or charisma over character. Oh, man, you're entertaining, and you can draw a crowd, and you're more pleasing for people to listen to, and people laughed more times when you spoke than when you spoke. So therefore, let's give this person a platform and a microphone, and, and that's what we prioritize. But in the Bible, it prioritizes character over charisma. That if you didn't have the character and the proven test of time to prove these things, you were disqualified from serving in these areas. So it says, in the same way, their wives, so not only the people did the men have standards, their wives must be respected and not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything that they do. A deacon must be faithful to his wife. He must manage his children and his household well. Those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and will have increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. Those were qualifications just to be a deacon. So in the same chapter, look up in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8. These are qualifications to be a bishop. And in 1 Timothy 3, it says, this is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, the new King James or King James uses the word bishop. He desires an honorable position. So can I tell you something? Is it a good thing to desire to be a preaching, teaching pastor or an elder appointed to secular matters? It absolutely is. You desire an honorable position. So the church, a church leader, a bishop, must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home and must be able to teach. He must be able to teach. Amen. If you're not able to teach, I'm sorry, you can't be a teaching pastor if you don't have the gift or the ability to teach the word of God. Amen. You know, it says faithful to, the, to his wife and other translations in both of these passages, it breaks it down more clearly and it says it must be a man of one wife. One wife. 
Amen. Guys, that's why I'm telling you that it's not okay. You know, again, we just kind of live with this, this idea. Like, I can run around. I can be in my fourth, my fifth, my sixth marriage, and it's, it's all good, great, and grand. Let me tell you something. If that's your life and your past, God will completely 100% forgive you. Total forgiveness of those things. But can I also say this is that decisions do have consequences. If I were to go shoot somebody in the head, will God forgive me of that if I genuinely repented? Yes. But could I spend 15 years to life in prison? Yes. Why? Because there is consequences for actions. And there are certain things that you do that God will forgive you, but by doing these things, you've, you've kind of made yourself an instrument of common use versus special use, as the Bible says, and God loves you, you'll go to heaven, you're forgiven, but you don't meet the qualifications to do certain things. Right. Amen. Amen. That's why it's important that we teach our children, one man, one woman. Right. When you get married, you don't get divorced. When you start fighting, you don't just run out on your wife. You don't just run out on your husband. You don't just run down the road and put off your responsibilities. You get there and you make things work. Right. Amen. And you get help and you get leadership and you get friends and family and, and, and it, you know, counselors over you yeah. to help you. Yeah. Amen. Amen. You know, that's not what people hear nowadays. You just, you hear mothers talking to their daughters. I don't ever reckon, uh, reckon, uh, <laughs> recommend the show. There's a show called Married at First Sight. You watch that show. Basically, these people get married the first time they ever meet each other, which I will say, at least they get married. I mean, you know, they're not just shacking up, living together, having sex, not being married. They get married, but the first time they ever meet each other is at the altar. <laughs> first time they ever lay eyes on this person is when the blindfold's removed and then they exchange vows and then they go straight into a life of marriage, never meeting each other before. Don't even know what the other person looks like. But you hear stuff in that show. I, I've watched a few episodes because I'm just like, this is just too entertaining. Oh, my gosh. You hear the most dumb things. They get married, and then they say things like, well, if you have to work, you know, if you're not working 40 hours, or if, you're, if you're working more than 40 hours a week and you don't want a vacation in Spain every year, then I'm out. I mean, and that's the world's mindset. It's like they're not in a marriage. They're just looking for somebody to be an accessory to their life. I got my life, my money, my things I like to do, and I want somebody just to come alongside and be my little toy that I drag along. That's not marriage at all. But that, that's what we're teaching children. That's what we're teaching people, that it's okay. You know what? Try it. If it doesn't work out, you can always get a divorce. Well, you can. And you can repent and be forgiven and go to heaven, but then you'll disqualify yourself from being these instruments that God would like to use maybe in other areas. Amen. Is that too truthful? So, it says, they must exercise self-control. They must live wisely and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home and must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? 
You know, again, this is just NLT translation, but other translations, it talks about children that aren't rebellious, not just that respect him, but children, children that serve the Lord. You have to have children that serve the Lord. And it's just ultimately it boils down to that. And guys, I'm not talking about, again, I understand sometimes people get saved later in life and things happen like that, but I'm talking The point that he's making here is that if you were a preacher, you were a believer, you were doing all these things, and it didn't work with your own children, and it didn't work with your own life, how do you think it's going to work in the house of God with other people? If it don't work for you, it's not going to work for anybody else. Amen? And so, a church leader must not be a new believer because he may become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. Turn over to Titus 1, 5 through 9. Titus 1, 5 through 9. He said, I left you on the island of Crete so that you would complete your work there and appoint elders. So again, right here, he's using the word elders. If you look at that Greek word, it's not mentioned, it's not bishop or deacon specifically, so he's kind of speaking generally. But then we're going to see that he does go on to speak about bishops specifically. But again, they would plant these churches and appoint preaching and teaching pastors, and then assistant pastors to them that would serve in secular matters that were, that were known as deacons. And so he says, appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. And so the, an, another thing as well is that you have to understand that the fivefold ministry, you know, the pastor, the evangelist, the apostle, the prophet, the teacher, that they may sometimes have a calling to more than just a local body. So a, a bishop and an elder was a person appointed specifically to a local body. So the person that gets up and preaches and teaches, and that's all they do. They just spend their whole life with one flock, in one town, with one group of people. They preach and teach to those people. They, yes, they function as a pastor, and we'll talk about that, but they're really functioning in the office of a bishop. Amen. So it says, and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife and his children must be believers who do not have a reputation for being wild and rebellious. Man, I want you to think about that. Number one, he must be faithful to his wife. How many times do you see that? How many times, how many stories do we have to hear about church mega pastors? They go, they cheat on their wives, and then what? Lord, forgive me, I repent. Man, you can repent and God will forgive you. But again, there's certain things that you do that now by the scripture, you disqualify yourself from functioning in certain roles. So it says your children must be believers. Say believers. 
You can't be a pastor and have atheist children. I don't understand these standards that we're having. That we, Why are we just throwing the Bible out? When it comes to appointing people, we need to get back to this. Instead of just who do we like, who do we have friendships with, who do we have relationships with. And I can tell you, I've been one of the ones in the past that have just done that. I've believed in certain people to the, I mean, to kind of a, a fault of my own overlooking things, kind of just seeing like, okay, this is where this person is and they're on fire and they seem to love the Lord right now and this is where I believe this person will go. Man, that was a mistake made on my end because there's qualifications that people must be examined closely before they can be appointed. So according to the Bible, that if a person has rebellious children who are not believers, they're known they have a reputation for being wild and rebellious. Can they be an elder, a bishop, or a deacon of a church? No, they cannot. A church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life, and he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. Look at that. Devout and disciplined. Dedicated and disciplined. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message that he was taught. Then, say then. Then he will be able to encourage others with the wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. You know, basically, they have to have a, a firm foundation, a firm belief in the word of God and the message of faith. Not only where you could get up and kind of articulate a sentence, but you must have Bible doctrine in order to function in this role to the point where you could prove people, show people where they're wrong according to the scriptures. Amen. You know, that's the thing about it is that's really the role of a teacher is when you're a teacher... Students should be able to ask you questions and you should be ready to give intelligent answers to those questions. I feel like half the time the things I hear some people say when listening to things is like, I don't even know if they know what they're talking about. I think that they just heard somebody else say that somewhere else and they're just repeating it like a parrot. You know? Ah, Stephen Furtick said this. Yeah, but why do you believe that? Where's that? Can you show me in the Bible why you believe that? If you hold that position, show me where it's at in the Bible. You must be able to do that in order to function in the role of an elder, a bishop, or deacon. It says, for there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. So Paul was telling Titus specifically that, you know, you need to be able to t tell these Jews that are going around telling all these Greeks that they have to be circumcised to be saved. How, according to the Bible, we're saved by faith alone and no other means for salvation. Amen. Okay. So those were the qualifications for an elder. Go back to Romans chapter 12. Verse 6, one more time here it says, If your gift is serving others, it says serve them 
well. Again, this is talking about the position of a deacon, one who carries out commands, an elder that's appointed to secular matters that would come alongside and assist a bishop. So basically what's that, what that's saying is if that's what God's called you to do, be the best that you could possibly be. Amen. If God's called you in a position to come alongside and serve somebody, be the best serving person you could possibly be. If somebody's appointed as a deacon, make it where the person that you're under, the bishop that you're under, if, if, if your role is to handle secular matters, then handle all the secular matters where they don't have to think about any of that stuff. That's what Paul's saying here. If you have the gift of prophecy, prophesy with as much faith as God's given you. If you have the ability or the gift to be a deacon, serve well in what you do. Take it as a gift. Take it as a calling. Don't take it as an obligation. Man, okay, the Lord's appointed me. He's given me this administrative gift to serve, to be able to do these things. This is the position that the Lord's called me to in the body of Christ. And then you just walk around rolling your eyes all the time. Oh, I have to handle. No, I mean, take it as a calling where you wake up and say, this is what I give myself to, to be excellent in this area. And so next, it says teaching. Teaching, the third gift here, teaching. If you are a teacher, teach well. Teaching's pretty self-explanatory. It literally means to impart, instruct, to instill doctrine, to explain and expound a thing. To impart, to instruct, to instill doctrine, to explain and expound a thing. To teach. That's a fancy way to say it. To teach. Say to teach. There is a gift given to the body of Christ in Ephesians 4.11 where God has given people this appointed them as teachers to the body of Christ. Kenneth Hagin was a teacher. Amen. Kenneth Hagin wasn't an evangelist. If you know who Kenneth Hagin is, if you're watching online, you don't know who he is. I'm going to tell you, read all of his books, go on YouTube, listen to his sermons. Great general in the faith that God used in, in this, in this uh, millennium, uh, not millennium, this, what's for 100 century? This century of church history, one of the generals of the faith, for certain. And so he talked about how, you know, he was, he tried to be an evangelist. He tried to be a pastor. He tried to do all these things, and, and it just never worked. He said he could never be successful in any of it, no matter how hard he tried. And then one day the Lord told him, he said, I want you to get up at this revival meeting Friday night, and I want you to just teach I want you to just walk around and teach. You're not going to get up and stand on the chairs and start screaming and shouting and salvation altar call like the evangelist does. He said, I want you to just get up there and I want you to just teach the Bible for an hour and a half. And he said, Lord, no one, I'll run everybody out of the room if I do that. Well, he said, okay, Lord, my ministry pretty much sucks as it is. So I'll go ahead and do what you told me to do. He got up and taught the Bible that night and, and it, just the anointing moved. Was it up there screaming and shouting? He just functioned in what God told him to do. He had received a grace, the ability to do a certain thing well. And the anointing came alongside the appointment. And so there are teachers. It's a, it's a position given to the body of Christ to teach the body of Christ. But I also want you to know this, that you can be a teacher without having to be one of the fivefold ministers. Give you some examples of this. Hebrews 5.12. Paul said, he wasn't talking about 
fivefold ministry teachers, he was talking to believers. He says, you have been believers so long that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. Can I tell you guys something? According to the Bible, there, there should come a point where every Christian is teaching other people. Reproducing. That's not what you see. And Paul was telling them, some of you, he said, you've been in the faith for 10 years, for 15 years. You should be teaching other people by now. But instead, you're still having to be taught these elementary things. Titus 2, 3 through 5. Paul told Titus, he said, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. Can I be real honest with you guys? Why is it in normal church it just looks like everyone shows up, sits through a sermon, and then goes on and lives their own little life? Where's the reproducing in that? It's not, just, it's not just a pastor's job or a bishop's job to reproduce. In fact, their job is to preach and teach the word of God and for the, the church to grab a hold of it and put it to work. At what point do you have to start looking at your life and say, have I been in this long enough where I should be reproducing what God has given me? Where I should be training up specifically, and it talks about older women. I should be training up younger women. I should be training up these younger girls. I should be training up these younger wives how to specifically, it says, love their husbands and their children. Live wisely and be pure. I bet you there would be way better marriages and younger marriages too, for that matter, in the church, in this generation, if, this, if, if people were actually doing this. Being married young, it can be hard, especially when you feel like, man, I'm just having to figure it all out on my own. No, you know, no. Paul's saying it shouldn't be that way. Those that have been in the word of God should be teaching this to younger people. Live wisely, how to live wisely, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. I mean, when have you ever heard about that? When have you ever heard of, a, of the older lady saying, you know what, younger ladies, let's get around and we're going to teach you guys recipes that you may not know. We're going to teach you how to take care of a home. We're going to teach you things that Disney Plus and Netflix ain't teaching this generation today. That's what Paul's talking about. But you really don't see it happening. Why? Well, unless we form an organized small group where the pastor is leading it and trying to coax and convince, you guys should do this, then it just doesn't happen. Because people have to take a hold of the word of God and begin to believe, I need to reproduce what I am. So, teach well. Say, teach well. 
So again, he's talking about these gifts. If you're a prophet, if you have the gift of prophecy, prophesy well. If you have the gift of being a deacon, serve well. If you've been given the gift of being a teacher, teach well. Basically, Paul's just making the point, be excellent. Be excellent in what God's given you to do. Number four, encourage. The fourth gift here, encourage. The New King James uses the word exhort. It basically means this, an address or communication promoting someone to do something. A stirring address to rally the troops. To speak to one with comfort and humility while giving them instructions. I'll repeat it again. I don't see it on there. It says an address. There it is. An address or communication promoting someone to do something, to exhort someone. Means to address people, to communicate, promoting someone to do something. A stirring address to rally the troops, to speak to one with comfort and humility while giving them instructions. Basically, you know what this means? Counseling. (laughs) This means counseling. God gives certain people gifts, the ability, the grace to counsel other people, to sit down, have a conversation, to stir in them, to prompt something in them, to rally the troops, to have conversations where they address the situation with comfort, uh, they confront it with humility, giving people instruction. It just simply means counseling. Amen. Amen. One place this is used in the Bible is Hebrews 10, 25. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Again, that word encourage, it's the same Greek word. Exhort one another. Exhort. Basically, the Bible says as the return of Jesus Christ draws near, you have to understand the Bible prophesied that many would depart from the faith. Things would get hard. Things would get difficult. Temptations would rise in the world and people would be tempted to depart from the faith. And so it says that we need to be rallying people together, encouraging them, stirring them to continue in the faith and following Jesus Christ. Amen. Number six, leadership. Leadership. Oh, I'm sorry, number five. I missed number five. My mistake. Number five, giving. So the Bible says, if your gift is encouraging others, be encouraging. Be the best. Again, take what God's given you, be excellent at it. Next, if it's giving, say giving. Give generously. Did you know that there is a gift? Again, this is a gift, a manifestation of the Holy Ghost that's equal to the gift of faith, the working of miracles, the gift of healing, prophecy, tongues, interpretation. There is a gift of giving. I'm going to try to help you understand what is that gift of giving. Do you ever wonder where we get this idea of end-time funders Those that feel like, okay, the Lord's appointed me to fund the end time harvest. Anybody's ever heard somebody use a a statement like that? If you've gone to this church, you've heard that. You're like, where is that out in the Bible? Well, it classifies underneath this gift of giving. It's a gift. It's an appointment to the body of Christ to be a giver. 
And not only an appointment to give, but anointing to acquire resources in order to give. Because you can't give what you don't have. You cannot give. He says, what I have, I'll give to you. That's what Peter told the crippled beggar. What I have, I give to you. Well, what you don't have, you can't give. So you can't really operate in the gift of giving if you don't have anything to give. And so we'll break this down a little bit more. Uh, so giving, it, it literally means this. The definition is to share or to impart substance. To share or to impart substance. So again, it's talking about substance. Say substance. What is substance? It's, it's your material goods, the things that you have, <laughs> your money, the, something that is of substance. We see this in Luke 3.11. John replied, if you have two shirts, say shirts. See, this isn't just talking about, well, I'm, I have the gift of giving and I have all this knowledge to give to another person. So I give in knowledge. No, in the Bible, it's used of substance. If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. Paul, John told them, if you have two shirts, take half of what you have and give it to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Where he said, give one to the poor. It's the same Greek word here. It means to give something of substance. So... Paul said, if you have the gift of giving, give generously. So if God has given you this gift, what should you do with this gift? You should give generously. Say generously. generously. What does it mean to give generously? Generous means a readiness to give more of something, especially more than what is necessary or expected. A readiness to give more of something especially more than what is necessary or expected. So when the Bible says give generously, Paul says that you should, be, you should take this gift, what God has given you, and be ready and willing to not only give what is necessary, but excessively more than what's necessary. So what's this talking about? Well, I can tell you, all Christians are called to give their tithe according to the scripture. The tithe was instituted in the old covenant. Say tithe. What is the tithe? It literally means tenth. That is what the word tithe means. It means tenth. Malachi said that if you haven't tithed, that you've robbed God, you've cheated God of what is due to him. Everybody's called to tithe. Jesus said you should tithe, yes, but you should give attention to more important matters as well. You should tithe, yes, means what? You should tithe. I should give a tenth to the Lord. Paul instituted the tithe in 2 Corinthians 8. He told them to set a portion aside once a week. That's why we take up tithes every single week. Every meeting that we have, we give people an opportunity to give. You know, because it's something that the Lord has told you to do. And anybody that's part of this church understands it's for your blessing. It's not just for God. It's, it's yes, to fund the work that he's doing here on the earth and to bless those that are teaching you and giving you the word. But it's ultimately for you to put seed in the ground in order to harvest the seed that you plant to produce a blessing in you. And so everybody's called. Every Christian is called to tithe. There's not one Christian that's the exception to that, to that 
doctrinal truth. Not one Christian. Every Christian's called to tithe. But again, generously means to give something especially more than what is necessary or expected. Well, what's necessary? If you're a believer, your tenth is necessary. Right? So this gift of giving is somebody that steps into the role of God has called me to give well beyond and above the tenth, the tithe of what is necessary or expected of me to give. Praise God. There's a gift for that. There's an appointment to that. That's why I'm telling you guys right now, this idea of end time harvesters, I want to tell you, that is a real time. Like God, has, God has called me to fund the body of Christ, to fund his ministry on this earth. That's what the Lord has called me to do. You cannot do that if all you do is give tithes. If you don't give above your tithe, that you can't even function in that gift. Because he said if you have that gift, you must function in it generously. Which means above what is necessary or expected. Um, so the New King James, it says the word with liberality. If you have to give, if, if you have the gift of giving, give with liberality. Say liberality. That word liberality means giving freely, no strings attached. So the new King James says give with liberality. The King James uses the word give with simplicity. So Paul says if you have the gift of giving, give with liberality. If you have the gift of giving, give with simplicity. That word simplicity, what it means is this. No false motives, no ill intent, no selfishness. No false motives, ill intent, or selfishness. So whenever he says give freely, that's what he's talking about. No strings attached. What do I mean by that? How can you give with wrong motives? You would be surprised how many people give trying to get something, trying to get power, trying to get influence. You know, somebody steps into a multi-million dollar level and they say, well, I'm going to write a tithe check for $100,000. But if I give you this check, then that means that I, I own you. I own the minute. I own what you do. The Bible says that if you have been given to give, that you must give with no strings attached. You must understand this is what the Lord has given of me, given me to do and what he's given to me. And I give it freely with no strings attached at all. It's my appointment to the body of Christ. An example of this, 2 Corinthians 1.12, it says, we can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity. That word sincerity, it's the same word here, the Greek word, same word used in all of our dealings. We have depended on God's grace, not our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world and especially towards you. So basically Paul is saying that he conducted all of his dealings with sincerity. That means truthful, pure heart, pure motives. So whenever you give, you have to give with a pure heart. Amen. If your heart's not pure, then you're not giving properly. If you're not giving properly, it's not going to produce properly. So... I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
First Timothy chapter 6. Let's read 6 through 9. It says, Godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world, and we can take nothing with us when we leave. I hope everybody understands that. You can't take money with you when you leave. You understand that? And he says, so if we have enough food or clothing, let us be content. But people fall, people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into the ruin, into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, say the love of money. Money is not evil. The love of money, the desire to be rich, chasing after wealth and money. With especially with the wrong motive. See, think about that. He said, if you have to give, if you have this gift of giving, give with simplicity. Give with, with no strings attached. Another word that was actually used here was this. Give freely. Give freely. So what that means is single focus. Simplicity means single focus as well. What, you know, people will just really go to the next level when you understand that your prosperity is not just about your house and your bass boat and you driving the bestest, biggest, fastest, most amazing car. I mean, really, you're like you're pursuing wealth with self-motivation. Whenever the Bible's talking about this, don't pursue after that. The love of money is the root of all evil, and someone craving money has wandered away from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Well, you could stop right there and say, well, why do we preach this prosperity message where prosperity is good and God wants us to prosper? We well, have to continue to read. So now it says in verse 17, teach those who are rich in this world, who are let me ask you this. Who has been given the gift of giving? That's a gift. Who's been given the gift of giving? Can I tell you what I really believe? The person that is rich in this world and is a believer has been given the gift of giving. God has graced you. God has put you in a position. God has put you in a platform. God has given you a, a realm of influence and prosperity where you're classified as quote-unquote rich in this world. Why has God given you that? So that you can what? Be generous in your giving, the Bible says. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud of their money. and I'm sorry, not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them, look at this, to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Paul said that if you have, if you're rich in this world, use your money to do good. Share. Help. Amen. Amen. That's the appointment. Let me give you an example of this. Again, I really believe there are those, the gift of giving is those that have stepped into the role where they say, my role, my appointment is not to be a teaching, preaching, and pastor, a teaching bishop where I preach and teach the word of God. My appointment is to fund the ministry. 
Where do you see this in the Bible? Well, in Luke 8, 1 through 3. Soon afterwards, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took, with, uh, he took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he'd cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and look at this, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. These were people that came alongside and embraced their role. They weren't, they weren't like so necessary and and in the preaching and teaching, and I'm sure that every witness of Christ did that, but they embraced this role. God has given to me, why? For the purpose of funding this ministry. These people that had been elevated, Herod's business manager, elevated with this platform, with this wealth, they had, God had given to them, and they recognized it and channeled it. This isn't just for my prosperity. God has given me this gift, and I am to funnel it to fund the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to step into the role of, of God has called me to fund the end-time harvest. When God begins to put in your hand, you don't have to pray about what, what I should really do. And I'm not talking about you live a life of poverty. Again, the Lord will give to you for your enjoyment. God gives bread to the eater and seed to the sower. Not everything that the Lord gives you is bread. And not everything the Lord gives you is seed. But never also take that position and say, well, not everything the Lord gives me is seed. And then you just live a life where all you do is sit around and eat bread all the time. And what happens when you just sit around and eat bread all the time? You get fat. You get constipated. It's not good. Too much bread. <laughs> Almost done here. They embraced this role as a ministry, a service to God. Why don't you think about that? Embracing that as a ministry. I'm functioning as a bishop. This is my ministry. This is talking about a person who says, God has graced me, gifted me. Y'all, I'm telling you, some of you are like this. Some of you, God's given you the ability to, I mean, it's like supernaturally acquire wealth. Don't screw it up. Don't miss it. Don't abuse it. Don't misuse it there are people that are that work like three times harder than some other people work and it's like they still this can't seem to really get to this platform and it's not that it's not God's will for every single Christian to prosper but there are those that have been appointed and gifted and graced apart from their merit by the Holy Ghost set apart and appointed to the body of Christ to function in this role and they have to embrace it as a ministry amen What's my ministry? Writing that check out to the body of Christ for the work of the kingdom. Amen. Again, this is a gift, 1 Corinthians 12, 18. It says, but our, body, our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part where he wants it. So again, this is a gift to give. You can't give generously if you don't have generously. That means that some will have a grace to fund the ministry of the Lord. That is their function. Praise the Lord. Two more. Number one, these will be a little bit quicker. Leadership. Leadership. 
This is number six, leadership. Back to Romans chapter 12. So if you have the gift of giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take that responsibility seriously. Listen to the language. Like the whole point that Paul's making with these gifts, take it serious what God has put in your hand to do. Come on, somebody. Amen. Some of y'all need to wake up, get up, sit up in your seat. Take it seriously. It says, leadership is this. It, it literally means to set over a superintendent, protect, to guard. A superintendent, a manager, to set over. So again, some have this grace, this appointment of leadership. Not everybody has this appointment of leadership. This is very straightforward. 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5. Where is this word used out in the scripture to help you understand it? Uh, one of the, again, qualifications of an elder, a bishop, or a deacon. He must manage. That word manage is the same Greek word here for leadership. He must manage his own uh, family well. He must sit over. He must be the superintendent. He must protect. He must guard his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. If you actually look at the King James or the new King James here, it's the word rule. Say rule. So it says he must rule his own house. Again, I know some uh, men will take that and think, yeah, look, I'm supposed to, I'm a dictator, you know? No, it's not talking about dictatorship. Again, it's the word leadership. But that does mean, that does mean being the superintendent. But guys, again, it's superintendent. You're the one that's in charge, but it doesn't mean dictatorship. It means to just sit over, to protect, to guide, to guard. Can I actually tell you this? Every man in this room that has a family, you're going to give an account for your family. You're going to give an account. For your wife, you're going to give an account for your children. I know ultimately every person has to make their own decision. Your wives can't go to heaven, men, based off of your faith. Your children can't go to heaven based off of your faith. But you will give an account for how you steered the ship of your home. That's why I, don't, I really don't get it. Like I've made it very clear to my wife, my little girl's in dance. But the second that that dance ever turns into something where, hey, where's Emberly at Sunday or Wednesday? Oh, she's out of town traveling for dance. She has dance practice or recitals. That thing's cut. You, know, you hear that kind of stuff. Well, where's your kid? Well, me and my family are going to drop out of church for three months because of Little League baseball. I mean, that's the dumbest thing. You'll give an account. You're the superintendent over your house. Men, you also need to understand this. You can't use and abuse that and be a dictator, but at the end of the day, the buck has to stop with you. You're not to be ran over by your wives either. That's not, that's not proper. I mean, and I'm just being honest, the Bible says that the head of woman is man, the head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. I know we live in a generation that says, I hate that. I don't want to hear it. You're just putting women down. No, that's the creative order that God has made. And when we embrace it and function properly in it, things will function fluently. Yeah, right. Women are not to be over men. 
Men are to be over women, but not in a dictator, horrible, you know, uh, misuse. You are to love your wife like Christ loved the church. If you look at what is love, I want you to think about that. I know this is just kind of off topic, but just for a second, humor me and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There's no denying that in the Bible, you are the head of your wife if you're a man. But it says, Paul said, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. That word love, what does it mean to love? Love is being patient. Well, if I'm the head over my wife, then you're going to do what I want. No, you have to be patient. Kind, say kind. If you're not being patient, if you're not being kind, you're not loving. Love is not jealous. It's not boastful or proud or rude, and it doesn't just demand its own way. So think about that. Again, at the end of the day, you have to be a superintendent and make decisions and lead a superintendent. Sorry if I slurred those words together. And lead. But yet, in love, you don't just demand your own way. You're reasonable. What that means is, it's not always just going to be a group decision. You know, and and, and you have to understand that. Not everything, men, in life will be a group decision. But what that's talking about is you don't just go in and say, this is how it's going to be. There's no reasoning with me. There's no talking about it. There's no conversation to be had. It's just that. And you're just demanding your own way out of a place of pride. You can't do that. Amen. So it doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It doesn't rejoice about injustice, but rejoices when the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, endures through every circumstance. Say every circumstance. Well, you don't understand. She really made me mad. Every circumstance. Amen. And you say, well, why don't you flip that and say, women, you know, you need to love too. Well, you should love if you're a Christian, but ultimately the Bible didn't say women love your husbands. It said submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Praise God. So that word leadership, it's the word used there. He must manage his own family well. Go back to Romans 12. Romans 12, it says, if you have been given leadership ability, take that responsibility seriously. Man, if God's appointed you as a leader, if God's appointed you over people where you manage people, where you're directing people, can I tell you, take it seriously. Amen. You'll always have my word. You know, I don't... I don't know. Sometimes people may hate what I say and they may not love my preaching. And, and if, if I preach and everybody just said, you know what, John, there's something better for us down the street. And this trickled down to three people, which I know would never happen. I would, I would still give it my absolute 100% attention and best every single time that I got up here to take it seriously. You have that commitment from me. And anything that God has given to you, take it seriously. The word... Um, In the NKJV, the New King James, it says, instead of take the responsibility seriously, it says lead with diligence. That word diligence means haste. It means excessive speed or urgency to action, to hurry, striving to accomplish. You know, 
when you're a leader, you have to have a plan. Where are we going? Oh, I don't know. You know, just, no, diligence. Lead with diligence, Ex haste, excessive speed, urgency of action, to hurry, striving to accomplish. Basically, that's just another way of also saying excellence. Excellence. Say this. Say, whatever God's given me to do, I will do it with absolute excellence. Last one here, mercy. So it says in Romans chapter 12, if you have the gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Other translation, use the word mercy. If you have the gift of mercy, of showing mercy, kindness, mercy, the Greek word, it, it means this. It means charity, kindness, compassion, to help one afflicted or seeking aid. Charity, kindness, compassion to help one afflicted or seeking aid. So, Dake said the definition of this gift is those who visit the sick and do charity work. Do you know that's a ministry? A ministry in this church. And did you know that like teaching is different than charity? Did you know that pastor... That bishop, that elder, that deacon, that word that we use, it's different. There's separation of gifts, but we expect one person to do all of these things. A true ministry in the body of Christ is somebody to say, I'm going to look around and see who's struggling, see who needs help, see who's sick this week, who needs hands laid on them, to pray the prayer of faith, and I'm going to take hold of it like a ministry and give myself to it and do it with excellence. And again, I don't know if this has really been preached into all of you that strongly. So I can't say, well, you know, you're at fault. I have to, I have to preach and get it in you. Examples of this, of this gift of mercy. Let's go back to Acts 6, 2 through 4. Same passage we read earlier, but it says, So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God and not running a food program. Again, does that mean the apostles didn't love? No, of course they loved. Every Christian's to love, every Christian's to give, every Christian's to show compassion, every Christian's to do that. But it's talking about the ministry of devoting your time to this as a ministry. They said, we can't go around making sure that house visits are made, that you know, things are followed up, that those that are having a hard time right now, they're all being comforted. You can't, one person cannot do all of those things. So he said, so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom and give them this responsibility. What responsibility? Mercy, mercy, charity, the gift of showing kindness, the food program. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. The Bible says if you've been given this gift of showing kindness, do it gladly again. Do it cheerfully. Do it with a smile on your face. Lord, I'm happy to do it. This is what you've given me to do. This is what I'm going to devote myself to doing, and I'm going to do it happily. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. I'm going to end with this in Matthew chapter 25. 
as we've been going over these gifts and you've been seeing the multiple roles that there are in the body of Christ. Many parts, but one body. Maybe God began to speak to you about what it is that you're called to do. And again, if I could tell you anything, whatever God has called you to do, just like the talents of the three servants in Matthew 25, multiply it. Multiply it. Take what God has given to you and do it excellently. Put it to work and multiply it. Come on. I don't, I don't really see that. I just, I'm not just saying in this church, but in like the body of Christ in general, I just see people, all they do is they just show up and listen to a service. They think that's their Christian duty. No, God has given each of us a gift, the Bible says. That means that you fit into one of these things. You play a part in this, that God, he's not only given you this gift, there's an expectation required of you. In the parable of the three servants, two of them multiplied. Two of them took the gift, put it to work, did what the Lord told them to do, did it with excellence, multiplied it. One of them did not use what God gave them to do, didn't use the gift. They buried it. And when the master returned, he stripped them of that gift. He stripped them of the talent, gave it to the one who was faithful with what God told them to do. And then that servant was banished into outer darkness. Come on. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you so much for tuning in with me as I shared the word of God. If you would like to become more than just a casual listener and want to give to our ministry, you can do so in the following ways. For credit or debit, go to www.nbchuntington.org donate. For PayPal, you can send it to NBC Huntington. For Cash App, use dollar sign capital NBCHTX20. Thank you so much. I pray God blesses you abundantly. Until next time, this is John Wallace.